0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 22nd, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Matt is recording again this week from Phoenix. And we're going to talk about some of the stuff that went on in the past week in the area of taxes. And those things we'll talk about this week include uh, the IRS clarified the treatment of 2021 Meals in two thousand and twenty-one and two thousand and twenty-two, I should say, meals and incidentals per diem. We get to discover if we get to count that as coming from a restaurant or not, and that matters for those two years. We have a case that deals with a self-directed IRA that just totally blows up on a taxpayer, based on where she was holding certain coins that officially were owned by an LLC that was owned by the single, by the self-directed IRA for her benefit. We'll talk about what the taxpayer did wrong, uh, how this went off the rails, and just a more general discussion of some of the uh, potential problems that, that you run into with a self directed IRA. In essence, my bottom line with them always are yes, they theoretically work, but they are very easy to make mistakes in, and you got to be very, very careful about how you handle it. And we'll talk about how these taxpayers tried to make this a do it yourself project. And it really turned out badly. Finally, we'll take a look at IRS guidance on the timing of the Paycheck Protection Program Forgiveness Income, something we've been wondering about ever since late last year. And we'll discover that the IRS issues what's arguably fairly taxpayer-friendly interpretation, but there is some relief offered for partnerships that, while welcome, is also very short-term and means action may need to be taken by the end of December if you have any partnerships that got a PPP loan and you either want to or need to make changes based upon this guidance. So we'll talk about that. But I really couldn't get through this week without at least talking about what seems to be the big story, Uh, even if from a tax perspective, I'll give you my, my perspective, I don't think anything's changed at this point. We're still kind of where we were a week ago. In essence, this week could have been very could have been fatal to the Build Back Better Act, but I didn't see any way that this act that this week actually just gave us everything we need to know about what was going to happen. If you hadn't heard the House Representatives this week did pass the Build Back Better Act. There was one Democrat who voted against the bill. Otherwise, it was a straight up party line vote. The Democrats voted for, the Republicans voted against pretty straightforward uh, bill in that question but also in the end the house was not the most challenging area for this bill to get through it was always kind of clear that we would probably get a house bill out of there you know the moderates got their score from the congressional budget office the score wasn't quite what the administration had said it did end up uh, showing some additional deficits over 10 years about 387 billion The weird part, the way we deal with taxes and this 10-year scoring, that makes it a relatively cheap bill. Really tough to think $7 billion is cheap, but it's cheap uh, relative to other recent bills that that we've seen come through that scoring process. So apparently the moderates, while it wasn't break-even, were okay with uh, that particular adjustment. However, its fate in the Senate is very unclear. And it's unclear not just for the tax provisions. In fact, in some ways, it seems like many of the tax provisions aren't really the key friction points, except for one, on the bill between the House and Senate. The key friction points appear to be related to some of the other things involved in the program. Currently, we have no commitments from either Senator Manchin or Senator Cinema to vote to this bill, certainly without changes. In fact, Senator Cinema gave a you know a couple of interviews this week. Uh, That were reported in the press where she essentially said that, you know, the program passed by the House was not in line with the uh, outline that uh, the president had given them for their assurances and working this program. So basically, that seems to be a rather clear sign, at least from her, that she expects changes if she's going to vote for this in the Senate. As well, we have another issue in this, the SALT changes, state local tax changes. That $80,000 uh, cap for, what was it, nine years, followed by a $10,000 final cap, or it may be a straight 80 and whole. I haven't really worried too much about the difference yet. Both Senators uh, Sanders and Menendez are want that change. What they want is the salt cap, uh, rest- salt cap basically, put in place and applied only once your income got above about $400,000. So they want to see the $10,000 cap stay in place above that level. They both complain that putting that $80,000 provision in uh, creates what is in their view a tax cut that goes primarily to upper income taxpayers, and they don't want to see that in this bill. So they're pushing for that change. Uh, the House supposedly is upset and you know doesn't want to see it change. We'll see how that goes at the end of the day. Uh, and to be honest, there's also been complaints about the salt cap for similar reasons from Senator Manchin from time to time. So we'll see what comes out. My guess is if we get a bill out of the Senate, which is far from certain, because remember, they have to have all 50 Democrat senators. They can't afford like the one no vote that happened in the House. That cannot happen in the Senate or this does not go through. So if they get a bill in the Senate that 50 of them can vote for, then either the House is going to have to accept that bill as is. And there will be some push for that, to be honest, because since any conference bill would have to go back to the Senate and get voted on again, that's risky when you have no votes to give. Uh, There may be a lot of pressure for the House to simply pick up the Senate bill. And I frankly believe even if we get a conference bill, there's the overwhelming odds are that whatever the Senate passes is going to dominate what the final bill would look like. So my take is the real work probably, if we get a bill, will happen over the next few weeks. Most likely, if we get a bill, and again, far from certain that we will, this is much like repeal and replace It may blow up totally at the end because the margins are so close. Uh, You know, if we get a bill, it will probably be very, very close to whatever gets through the Senate, since that's the tougher needle to thread. And so we'll need to keep a close eye on the Senate. And most likely, I mean, Senator Schumer this week even made the statement that he expects a bill out by Christmas. Well, that tells you right away that he's backing off of any fast turnaround. So we're not going to see this bill. Obviously, Congress is out of town. Uh, We are unlikely to see it just run right through the minute the Senate comes back into town. My guess is we'll see negotiations continue through the Thanksgiving break. Uh, We will see whatever the Senate can piece together in those negotiations to get 50 votes through. And then we'll really be looking at what does the House do? And, you know, does the House just accept the Senate bill or do they try to hold for other items and how that works? it is, I think, most poss- most likely that this is going to look much more like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in terms of timing, if not even what we got last year, where the bill got signed into law on December 27th. Could even go as far as what we had a, f- a few years ago, uh, going back when Obama was president, where we had Congress pass a bill that was passed into January, like f- we finalized the bill on January 1st of the following year. All of those are very possible, so keep your eyes on what's happening. I would pay more attention now as we get to Senate provisions and we see what the Senate will allow to go through, because that was always going to be the tougher sell, and then go from there. As I said, I'm reading this as most likely whatever the Senate comes up with is far more likely to be the way the bill will look, or at least it'll look a lot more like that, than it will look like what we saw in the House this week. Okay, let's get to the regular old stuff that happened—actual things that actually have an impact, and we know will have an impact. First, I want to talk about is IRS Notice 2021-63. This was issued on the 16th of November, and this is a relatively short notice, uh, but important one for our purposes. Now, restaurant-supplied meals are, you know, that are deductible expenses, 100% deductible if you pay them in 2021 2022 paid or incurred depends on your accrual or cash basis 100% deduction and we knew that already however many employers reimburse employees for travel based on a per diem allowance because that's a lot simpler than getting receipts from them for everything as well self-employed individuals are allowed to use per diem in lieu of keeping all those records on their schedule c etc well, what we've got now is the question, if I have, and you know it's always published, there's a meals and incidental portion of the total per diem. Per diem in general includes your lodging, meals and, meals and incidental expenses. And there actually are, you know, separate lodging amounts. There's the meals and incidentals number, and then there's just straight incidentals number, which means we kind of we get back into meals from that structure. So the question became, though, if I do this, I'm not really, I don't know where the food came from. In fact, let's be blunt about per diem. We don't know that that much was spent on meals. We're just going to allow it without the extra records. Do I get to treat that allowed meal as if it came from a restaurant? Or is it going to be because I can't really prove it came from a restaurant? It may not have come from anything. You know, the employee may have just decided, you know, to fast for the day and just pocket the money. I, you know, do I have to just limit it to 50%? The IRS has said for this purpose they are going to allow this to be treated as 100% coming from restaurants. So every meal in a Meals and Incidentals uh, package that where it's a per diem payout and you meet all the requirements for it to be a per diem payout, so you meet all the requirements found in Revenue Proc 2019 48, you'll be able to treat that as 100 percent deductible and it is clear that applies for both employees under an employer program and for self-employed individuals that follow the revenue proc and are allowed to claim the per diem allowance that's a nice ruling certainly helpful to us uh and you know it's probably not surprising i would have expected the irs to allow this But it's kind of nice to have it in writing rather than us have to just do it and then potentially argue a few years down the line with an agent about whether it had to be 50% limited. Next up, I think we've all had clients that have been marketed self-directed IRAs. And because people always want to put weird stuff in their IRA. Part of it makes sense. People think of that IRA as my money. The problem is, like with any tax benefit, generally there are strings attached whenever we give a tax benefit, and that also includes treatments of an IRA. While it may be very tempting to think of that IRA as your money and you should be able to do with it what you wish, that's not really how the law works because otherwise, you know, there would be no real restrictions. Everybody would just automatically get this deduction, and it wouldn't matter what you did with the money. That's not how it works. Well, this is a case of a taxpayer, and it actually was the husband and wife. And there's a weird effect in this case because while we are arguing over what she did, they had already conceded before trial that what he had done resulted in large distributions to him from his IRA. So. We don't know what he did. We don't know what exactly happened. We do know that he had the same type of uh, basically gold coins as she did in her IRA. But for whatever reason, you know, he also had a condo in there. Uh, If I had to guess, I'm going to guess he blew somehow, you know, under a series of cases like Ellis that he had blown forty nine seventy five. The primitive transaction rule was blown. With that is blown, the entire IRA is treated as meatly distributed. If I had to guess, I would think he had a slam dunk 4975 problem. He may very well have guaranteed the mortgage on the condo. That's all you need to do to make the whole thing blow up. Okay. Because obviously there's some reason why we're arguing like mad about her coins, but we've just totally accepted that his coins all were treated as distributed. So I was asked about that on Twitter my guess there's a 4975 issue on his side but we're not going to know that in today's case. Right? We just don't have that because it doesn't matter. So we have a self-directed IRA. They actually she read about this apparently on a website for an organization called Checkbook IRA LLC. Uh, read about, you know, the self-directed IRA. Checkbook, you know, Checkbook IRA LLC you know, had information, you paid them fees, they set up this program. They also had a deal where they arranged for you for a trust, Kingdom Trust Company, to become the trustee in charge of your IRA. Under the IRA rules of Section 408A, an IRA needs to be held in a trust or a custodial account can be treated as a trust. And there are certain rules that apply to that trust, right? Essentially... The trust has to take possession of the assets, right? And if assets are of certain types, they have to make sure they're properly secured. So the trustee owns the asset. You really, really, really cannot be. And you cannot be your own trustee. In a qualified retirement plan, let's talk about if this was a a profit-sharing plan and she had a trader business. She actually could be the trustee of the profit-sharing plan. That's not disallowed, right? Because, you know, retirement plans are covered by ERISA. There's additional reporting rules, etc. So they do have rules where you could self-trustee them, but you can't self-trustee an IRA. So we have to have this trust in play. And this is going to become one of the key issues because it becomes pretty clear that this trust really didn't do much of anything. And that's where we're going to get into issues. Now, what she did... She had a bunch of rollovers, so funds came into the IRA from all of these retirement accounts, et cetera. She put all these funds in the IRA. They also, along with Checkbook Checkbook IRA, LLC, they formed, you know, helped her form a single-member LLC. The single-member LLC was formed, and it had all of its interest acquired directly on formation. This has to be true. We have that back from the Ellis and Pete cases that, You know, as long as the the the, the IRA is not buying the LLC interest from the participant, it's not a prohibited transaction. And that's not what's happening here, or it's not contributing to an LLC that already has an interest held by this third party, you know, by by the beneficiary of the IRC of the IRA, I should say so we're fine we can put all this money into the ira that is clear under the under the rules and the court tells us about even cites the cases you know in this case that that it worked for so that's not really a problem and then of course we have to govern the llc and the llc therefore the trust appoints as member you know basically the there is an agreement put in as it puts the trust agreement or the LLC operating agreement in place they appoint mrs mcnulty as the manager the sole manager of the LLC so she directed her IRA which she's allowed to do to buy this LLC that's no problem that's fine then as manager of the LLC she had it buy certain gold coins now under section 408 generally an IRA cannot invest in collectibles However, it can elect invest in certain things that otherwise would be collectibles. Coins usually are considered collectibles. However, if you meet certain special rules, right? There are limited categories of coins that are not considered to be collectibles, and so under that section four hundred eight m has this particular rule. That tells us, essentially, that certain gold coins generally issued by the federal government, the Treasury, etc., are not considered to be uh, collectibles. You can have them in your IRA. So she bought those coins, and she bought them, and she claims she bought them in the name of the LLC. Now, the court notes a few situations where it's kind of not clear whether they were really respecting the LLC. Sometimes the point, she, the organization she bought the coins from, would record it as being, you know, paid for by an LLC. Sometimes they would just have her name on things, uh, but she claimed these coins were purchased by the LLC. Now, when the coins arrived, Mrs. McNulty took the coins and put them in a safe in her house. Now, that safe also contained coins that they owned personally, right? So they were in the, in the safe together. All of these went in the safe. So she became this issue, right? We had these coins in our safe. Now, every year, as you know, a 5498 has to be filed on the IRA by the custodian or trustee. What Kingdom Trust did every year was they essentially sent Mrs. McNulty, uh, you know, some questionnaires to have her provide the value for the assets. And she provided values. Now, values for most of the coins were actually provided by the organization they bought the coins from. However, they had other coins, the silver coins, they did not get a valuation from the entity that sold the coins every year for their value at year end. And she also, on certain years, omitted. Uh, certain assets like the silver coins kept getting omitted because she didn't include them the you know checkbooks for the llc didn't get included in valuations etc so it was kind of an odd situation but the practical matter was that mrs mcnulty was providing the numbers that would then just simply be picked up by the trust the trust company and it would then put that down on a 5498 report that's the value the ira so, all well and done. Now, the IRS came in and said, Hey guys, we have a couple of objections here about this. We're saying that in reality, Mrs. McNulty has unfettered access to these coins, right? In essence, they're just like her own. She has her own access to them. They're being stored in her home. These things are not in any way, shape, or form being held by the trustee. The trustee is totally detached in this case. Right? Has nothing going on except, you know, collecting a fee, filing a 5498 every year is effectively what the IRS is going to imply is going on. Now, Mrs. McNulty says, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. You know, what the trustee is doing, oh, they hold the LLC interest, right? And that's what matters. And as, you know, and I'm manager of the LLC, I've been properly appointed manager and therefore, I, you know, and I'm the one, therefore, that got the coins and I'm securing the coins. The trust is not required to secure this asset because really the asset they need to secure is the LLC interest. And I can go ahead and store these. The IRS also said putting those coins in and having them in the safe kind of just ming- mingle directly with the personal assets of, you know, the McDulties, that violates the requirements that there be no commingling, right? That in essence, you're not allowed to have, we're supposed to assure under 408A5 that the assets of the IRA are not commingled with other assets except in a common trust fund. And that's not what this was. So they're saying, look, there's, even if we don't, even if you go down that path and you're going to say, okay, we're not going to worry about the fact that she had unrestricted use of this asset. It is still impermissible commingling. So, you know, the court looked at that. The you know, the taxpayers obviously saying, "Look, we got this LLC. The LLC owns the assets, and really, you just have to respect the LLC only. That's the only thing you need. You can look at. You can't look inside the box, right? Well, literally, I guess in the safe too. Inside that box, either. You cannot look inside the black box as the LLC and worry about that." And I suppose an argument would be kind of, we don't worry about how the assets owned by Microsoft are being managed if your IRA owns Microsoft stock. That's her theory. Unfortunately for her, uh, that's not how the court looked at it. The court came down on them on a couple of issues. First, they said, for all practical purposes, Ms. McNulty had full access to those coins without any restriction, right? She could do what she wished with them. They were full, unfettered access. And, you know, let's think about this. Assuming that, okay, she's liable as manager if she took funds from the, from, from the LLC, but really, who's she liable to, right? That's not something the court directly mentions, but clearly that, that's one of the issues that you look at, saying, you know, ignore everything else. In reality, she has direct control. Now, Ms. McNulty said, no, 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 no. You cannot ignore the existence of the LLC. Now, the court here makes a really interesting comment, which I find kind of just getting them set up because they're afraid of an appeal. But they actually do say in regard to this, you know, are we really disregarding the IRA? And the courts actually in a footnote comes back. And references the fact that the Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, which is where this case would be heard, had ruled in a prior case uh, that related to Roth IRAs, uh, basically reversing the tax court's sum of holdings uh, position back from 2015, and the circuit court opinion was in 2018, that related to a domestic domestic international sales corporation, that effectively, in that context, which they point out was not really this fiduciary question, that the ta- that you know that that the court had to respect the form of the transaction with the IRA and not inquire into the underlying substance. Well, obviously, I think the court's a little concerned that the First Circuit might see some holdings as Apple here, so they're going to help them distinguish that in this case. What they pointed out was, no, 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 here's the catch. Now, this, if this really is what governed it, it was just a major, major league footfall by, you know, by the taxpayer here. They said, Well, look, they're not disregarding the LLC. You have elected inside the LLC, the trust company has elected to treat the LLC as disregarded. Right? Single member LLC. They're not. They didn't make a check-the-box election to file as a C corp and pay tax as a C corp. Now, obviously, that would definitely have a negative tax consequence, because you would have an inside tax inside the C corp, and you'd have to file 1120 every year. But the court points out that you're treating this as disregard entity. So actually, the IRS is paying direct attention to the form of the transaction, and if it was a disregard entity. And you know, fo- follow the logic here, if that's a discard entity, who's the owner of the coins? Well, it would be the trust. And the trust company owning the coins had failed to secure them, which is required of the trustee for this sort of an asset. They have to have it properly secured. They don't because they don't have the asset properly secured and the asset is actually being held by the ira beneficiary directly voila it's a distribution so in essence they're they're giving they're giving the first circuit an off-ramp to get around having to do this right but then they also said which is kind of funny at the last line they said and anyway it doesn't really depend on whether the llc exists right or whether it's a discard entity or it's separate legal existence so you know they, they then throw that up to the court saying well really we didn't use any of this but What the footnote reads to me is like, but if you think we did, here's your off ramp. It's disregarded. Therefore, don't worry about it. So they come back to the fact that, you know, the trust did not exercise enough discretion. They allowed her to do this. Clearly, she was allowed to do what she wished with the asset. They're saying that makes it a distribution. Now, the taxpayers tried to argue the Section 408M, uh, which was added to allow us to have these sorts of coins in our IRA. That that provision, in and of itself, is what allowed us to be able to use this. That that's really how this works. And, okay, let's talk about that. 408M. And what that talks about is an interesting section. It says, you know, it tells us that for a collectible is any coin, and it describes all the coins. You could do that in A, and then it goes on for B, or any gold, silver, platinum, palladium, bullion of a finest, equal, or exceeding certain amounts is there. And then it has what we call flush text. So we have here section uh, 408 M3, right? Then we have a little subs A and B. But then at the very end, we come back out of that, and therefore we get what's considered not part of A and B, by the way the c- code's written, but just part of C that says, if such bullion is in the physical possession of a trustee described under subsection A of this section. Now, they're saying, aha, here's what it is. You don't need to have this asset in the in the hands of a trustee because it's not bullion. And, you know, that tells us that only bullion only bullion at least for collectibles has to be held by the trustee that otherwise the collectible can be held by the taxpayer so coins could be held by anybody the trustee does not have to secure coins but the trustee has to secure bullion we didn't buy bullion well the court said first it's not really clear that the coins are not considered bullion under this issue but let's not worry about that they said the bigger problem is that, you know, both the IRS and the taxpayer claim the plain text of the statute requires their result. To the IRS, they say the plain text of the statute requires that the taxpayer hold, you know, hold, you know that, that the trustee has to secure the assets. And the taxpayers say, no, 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 the plain text says that coins are special and coins do not have to be secured. The court says, okay, you all agree that this is going supposedly from the statute. Well, there's a little problem here. The court said, while the statute does say that bullion has to be held, and we're not going to worry whether your coin is also considered bullion by this, and they go through some historical reasons why you might have to read it that way, but they they, they say, let's ignore that. It never tells us, For sure never makes a statement that coins do not have to be held you're doing you're trying to do reading for what you consider being unambiguous okay doesn't have to be done that way by omission the fact that it didn't say coins you know have to be held by the trustee that means voila they don't have to be held by the trustee you know so OK, fine. Uh, logically, though, it might be saying that, well, you know, if there is a red light at the intersection, you are not to proceed. Well, obviously, when we put that in the law, we invent, you know, put traffic lights up instead of signs. Let's say we add that to the law. Well, obviously, then stop signs. That means I can run them because they're not lights. No, it didn't mean that they never really got rid of the rule that said you had to stop, you know, at the traffic signs. And what the court is saying, four hundred one 408A, which sets up the IRA and the trustee requirements and what the trustee has to do, that wasn't repealed by this. So we ignore this. This tells us what we have to do with bullion. Bullion has to absolutely be held by the trustee directly. Now, the 408 rules are a little more broadly worded, but... And the regs tell us about securing these valuable assets, that that security has to be done. The court said that what this means is you still have to have the proper security of the assets. And if they're incredibly valuable, they have to be, you know, basically held by that somehow totally secured, put under lock and key and held in a place under the control of the trustee. That's still true. Might not technically be held directly by the trustee in this form, but it would be the case. They're saying, so there is no exception here, because they were arguing that even if otherwise assets would have to be held directly by the trustee or would have to be certainly in a place the trustee had full control over, that wouldn't be true for gold coins. The court rejected that. Finally, the court looked at the intermingling rules. And this, to me, honestly, seems like the slam dunk in this case. They clearly had these assets intermingled with others. Right. The assets were to the extent they existed. The only assets of the LLC were the coins and therefore the LLC was totally intermingled with coins of the non LLC. So we had total intermingling of assets and commingling is not allowed under the code. So at the end of the day. Full taxable distribution to Ms. McNulty for those coins out of that IRA into her account her personally and she ends up having to pay tax on the full distribution now the taxpayers also then at the end of the day they had to argue about whether penalties applied in this case under 6662a and the penalties they were arguing not only for her her wages or her amounts that were distributed which the court decided but also for the amounts they'd conceded that his ira you know had to count as a distribution and here it became more interesting. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what they did and, you know, why the court found that, hey, the penalties apply. The court did note, and this is a published decision, 157 TC number 10, the case of McNulty versus Commissioner. It is clearly a published decision. McNulty is published. Right. Published decisions are where the tax court is breaking new grounds they had never technically ruled on this issue before so now they're going to rule on this issue well okay we look at that now we're going to sit down try to figure this out having ruled on this issue they said quite often as long as it was you know an uncertain issue and there was a reasonable level of uncertainty about what was going on and the taxpayers acted reasonably to determine the proper tax liability but just didn't get it right and you can kind of find a case where they, where they allowed that in, what was it, Castiglia, Castiglioga? Can't remember the law firm now. But it was a self-employment case a couple of years ago where they had ruled that, well, you know, this had been decided. Uh, you, yes, you owe self-employment tax law firm, but you had consulted with an outside expert, a very experienced CPA. And this was all took place before we got, you know, essentially case law that made it clear that we would expect such this, these amounts to be subject to SE tax, the Rankmeyer case. So we're going to go ahead and waive the penalty. In this case, they said, though, now we're going to take a look at what the taxpayers did. Now, the taxpayers, therefore, have to show they acted reasonably. Or the other way you get around that, you act reasonably right, you try to do the right thing, and you just got the answer wrong. Or... You could say you relied on advice, professional advice. Well, they did have a CPA do the return, but the court quickly decided that that was not going to be relevant here. In fact, it kind of hurt the taxpayers. The taxpayers had a CPA prepare the returns for the two years in issue. However, they never asked the CPA about this structure and using it. Never made a claim they ever sought advice from the CPA about this structure. And in fact, they never, they admitted they never told the CPA about the fact that the coins were being held, the coins that had been purchased by the LLC in the IRA were being held in a safe in the taxpayers' home. So the CPA was not aware, probably, of any of this. But at the very least, was clearly not aware of where the assets of the LLC in this self-directed IRA were being held. So the court said right away, obviously, you did not attempt to rely on the advice of the CPA. And to be honest, you read between the lines. It seemed like the court believed that why wouldn't you have asked? And it, and it virtually says this. It comes very close to going this far it just says that you know that they didn't ask about it It was unusual they didn't ask their cpa you know about this major transaction that was definitely unique you know you had to recognize this was a unique structure you were going into and you know they didn't ask the cpa the court doesn't say it directly but there seems to be an implication that the court may have believed it wasn't asked because the taxpayers did not want to be told no And they really figured the CPA was going to say, this is too good to be true. No, it's likely to end badly. So then they backed up to the taxpayers' own actions. The taxpayers claimed, oh, we researched this, and we believe this was okay to hold these coins in our personal possession. Well, just saying I researched it, not going to get you very far, because you got to show us what the research was you did. And they didn't really ever put all the pieces together to show that, well, I looked at this, this and this, considered these items, got information from these sources, you know, and then weighed everything. And I made my decision. And based on their sophistication, you know, you you could kind of decide if that was a reasonable course of action for somebody of their sophistication. Rather, the best the court could discover was that they, they did introduce information about what was on the website of this checkbook LLC or checkbook IRA LLC organization. And it did say there that it was OK to form this thing and to form this. Once you formed this LLC, you could then hold the coins on your own. Apparently, they were into coins at that LLC. Uh So, you know, at that checkbook IRA LLC apparently had a lot devoted to the coin issue. So they apparently implied that that was one of their sources of research and that they decided there was uncertainty in the area, but they had decided that it looked okay. Well, the court said if that's what you relied upon, there are a number of problems with this. First thing is, what you were reading was clearly marketing material, right? It's marketing material marketing material is not you know first thing is it's clearly not impartial research right you're you're not going to you know have do you have go to a you know how how many steakhouses houses where you live advertise on their website or in their ads on tv or on newspapers billboards etc these are the best stakes in fill in your state area whatever well is that really an unbiased review of the best stakes can i say hey you know steakhouse just down from me yep i know they're the best steaks in Arizona because the company says they are on their website they're the best you know highest quality best steaks you know the most the most tender the most you know the flavorful whatever steaks in Arizona come to our restaurant now nah, that's not really an unbiased source of information in that area I would realize if I really wanted to get some, some judgments on that, I might consult other parties who aren't trying to get me to show up at the restaurant. I might ask my friends who have actually been there. You know, I might go ahead. If I if I think restaurant critic, I usually agree with this person. I might read their articles, you know, but i check with my friends, my neighbors, everything like that. That's what I'm more likely to do. And just, just get that with people I respect and try to figure out, you know, yep, okay, th- th- this one's pretty good, 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 you know, it's really where some of the best stuff is. You need to try this. Well, clearly they had not gotten an unbiased view. And we've had case law for a long time that people should know they shouldn't rely on that for tax decisions. You shouldn't be relying on information obtained from, you know, a party party who is in the business of getting you to do that transaction? That's their main business. That's not really something you should you know be able to rely totally on without consulting other unbiased sources. They also tried a second route, apparently, and again, the court's implying this because they never really tied down this whole research item. They pr- They put in a, a printout of an Iris web page from 2019. Now, that's kind of important because the years in question here are 2015-2016. an IRS page of 2019 that they said purportedly supported this idea that coins were special and coins did not have to be held by the trustee of the IRA. Well, the court had a couple of problems. First thing is, was a bit of a foot fault at trial. They hadn't really labeled this as an exhibit. As such, the court said, Well, you know, we really can't consider that because that was not an exhibit, it was not a proper exhibit. We're not allowed to consider that at trial. The IRS objected, they said, IRS is correct, this really isn't something we're allowed to pay attention to. Secondly, they said, There's a problem here, you know. They never really tied the days together, but obviously that's it. It's like, you know, you never showed us you consulted this before you made your investments, you went into this thing, or certainly not before you filed the tax returns on the issues in question. And that makes perfect sense because th- this is a 2019 webpage, and this is a 2015 and 16 transaction, and an iris exam in 18. Yeah, you know, it, it's a little difficult using 19. Hint, if you're going to try to do something like this, I would certainly at least go to the Wayback Machine and try to get a copy of something that you could at least argue was a copy of what was on the website at that time. But the court probably have trouble with that, too, because if that was really what you relied upon, why didn't you keep a copy of it from 2015 when you relied upon it? So, OK, we have an issue with that. So they didn't show they did it. And third, the court said that page doesn't say what you claim it says. It never said coins did not have to be held by the trustee. So, again, doesn't matter. Wouldn't help. So at the end of the day, they said, nope, in this case, sorry. You know, I researched it myself as just a straight off, you know, blatant, you know, statement is not good enough for this. Your research was not up to what appears to be your research is not up to the level that it would have made a reasonable, right? That you are making a reasonable attempt, given your knowledge and sophistication, a reasonable attempt to properly determine your taxes. This is where I think the CPA becomes a problem for them because the court pretty much tells you straight up a reasonable person in this situation who is paying a tax professional that clearly, you know, could give advice in this area but just keeps them out of the loop entirely about the transaction uh, that's not reasonable action that that appears to be at best opinion shopping and you kind of realize that the opinion you're going to get from this guy is not one you want to hear or have to somehow then factor in as to why you overrode his opinion so for that reason all the penalties apply now let's talk about the final thing here right here's the last one that we've got today and this is revenue procedures 2021-48 2021-49 2021-50 these came out on the 18th of november and the big one here is 2021-48 and i'll tell you what the other two do shortly but let's talk about 2021-48 2021-48 deals with the timing of recognition of tax exempt income if you got a ppp loan the Paycheck Protection Program Loan Forgiveness. This has been a big issue for because of the basis problems, right? If I got a million-dollar loan, I spent a million dollars on expenses in my business in 2020. If I don't recognize the tax income in 2020, then I very well may have a basis problem that either denies me part of my loss, by the way, denies that loss in the last year I could have carried the loss back. Or I may have a distribution that is in excess of basis out of the S corporation. Because I have a million dollars cash, that's what I use to pay for these expenses. I still have cash available, very likely at this point to make distributions. But I may not have any basis left over. Because we hadn't yet picked up that million dollars increase in basis. That the end of the year law last year will allow us to do upon forgiveness. And the question becomes, what is the date of forgiveness? And we had an AICPA letter we've discussed before earlier in the year that asked the IRS to, you know, allow either, you know, make it as funds were spent or allow that option. What this notice does is effectively allow the option. So if you want to make use of this RebProc, you qualify under it because you got the PP loan, etc., You can pick up your tax exempt income as you spend the funds of the loan on the items that would lead to forgiveness. You could do it as of the date you send in the application for forgiveness of a loan. Or you can do so on the date your forgiveness is granted. Now, you do have to do this consistent for all tax purposes. So, And it would appear that if you do it on one of these bases for a first draw loan from 2020, you apparently would need to do it for the second draw loan here in 21. Use the same dates for your timing of your taxes and income recognition. What this will allow many people to do, though, is especially those that had said, Well, you know, IRS hasn't said, I'm, I'm going to just go with the day that I get the letter from the bank and the SBA saying the loan's forgiven, the formal forgiveness date, which is the last date of these three you've got up here. Well, Now you have full authority to go back and revise your return to instead pick it up back in 2020 when you probably spent all the funds that led to that forgiveness in 21. So I can go back and I can actually pick that up in that year. Now, the IRS does say that if I do this, where I recognize where I pick it up as forgiven before I got actual forgiveness, And if later it is found that I did not get full forgiveness, let's say the bank does not fully forgive the loan, if that happens, I do have to go back and amend the prior year. That is a requirement under this procedure. And I would read that to mean that expect to be penalized if you don't do that and the IRS comes back in and examines you. But generally, this can give us a much better timing for this. So, as I said, once we do that, now, 202149 20, is a revenue procedure that walks you through the mechanics for a partnership, and then very quickly for a controlled group of corporations. If you're looking at the basis of the sub, but of how you handle this, in essence, when you flow out the cancellation, when you flow out the tax-exempt income, which will increase the partner's basis. Actually, the main effect there for a partner is probably going to be to get rid of an at-risk problem because the problem with the partnership is not that you don't have basis in that loan to the partnership; the partners do. At least somebody's getting basis from that loan. The problem is that it's non-recourse, and as non-recourse, probably not at risk. It's certainly not qualified non-recourse. Uh, the law made it. The, you know, the, the we'll go back to the CARES Act, and it, clearly the loan is non-recourse. So, yeah, you know, we have a little bit of a problem here when we run down that list so we're now going to get our basis step up and it tells you that you're supposed to allocate the expenses according to the partnership agreement which is just what we kind of knew but then the cancellation has to follow the expenses and they tell you about a deemed sale treatment if let's say part of this was spent on things that had to be capitalized for tax purposes but it led to forgiveness or it led to qualifying how how you spent your funds under a restaurant revitalization grant or a number of other programs where it was tax-exempt relief. If you have failed to follow those rules, then the IRS doesn't have to respect your allocation. So if you did it somehow and you didn't come into line with these rules, you want to check these rules out compared to how you did it if you picked up cancellation on the partnership return, you might want to go back and fix using this. Now, this leads us to the obvious problem, and this is what 2021 50 is meant to solve, which is the final revenue procedure of this group. If you have a partnership that is a bipartisan Budget Act 2015 covered partnership under the new audit rules, so the partnership audit rules, so it's a BBA audit partnership, either because it was ineligible to opt out or it simply didn't opt out for the, for the affected year most likely 2020 technically at this point you can no longer amend that partnership return to make changes and technically that means that you need to go down the administrative adjustment request basically uh, structure and go through all that and jump through all those hoops and do all that work in order to figure out all the changes you'd have to make and report under the AR scheme, do push-out adjustments to the extent you change allocations, make all of those things, and then the partner would report the impact of this, not on the 2020 return, but rather would end up having to report the effect of that adjustment, assuming you got the notice out before the end of this year, on their 21 return, either increase, decrease in tax, and the decrease be a credit, non-refundable, cannot be carried over, or if you didn't get it done until after the beginning of the year on the 2022 return. Notice 2021-50, the last one of this group, allows for BBA partnerships that otherwise would have to go an AAR route to to take advantage of any of these rules. They can file just an amended revised 1065. However, here's where the catch comes it has to be filed by december 31st of 2021 yeah just a little over a month from now we have to have it filed and there are holidays in there people be traveling people be off on vacation uh it's complicated getting things filed by the end of the year so good news we can do the amendment bad news we got to move quick on it and we're running out of time secondly There is some more relief, though, if you are a partnership and you get one of these amended K-1s before the end of the year from another partnership and you, the partnership that had an interest in that upstream partnership, itself is a BBA partnership. It can also do the amended return routine, but it is not subject to this December 31st, 21 deadline. And the other neat thing about this is this also clarified that any other time the IRS grants this relief, where a partnership, the initiating partnership, can do an amended return and you get a K1 rather than the AAR routine, uh, the downstream partnership can also go the 1065, amended 1065 route without, and they don't have the deadline, right? They pretty much have the time to do it, so they can make this revision. as uh, as pot as available i i find it interesting that that partnership appears to have an unlimited time frame you know at least up till the statute ends to go with the 1065 but the starting one doesn't my guess is the irs recognizes that if you let this go too long uh you know downstream partnerships could run into trouble and there could be downstream you know there can be knock on effects with these downstream partnerships issuing now k-1s that now the next downstream partnership has to worry about so i understand why they want the first partnership to move quick however i would hope that they would at least at some point reconsider at least running this to the end of the first quarter of next year instead of doing it for the end of this year that to me seems to be a problem in that structure This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of November the 22nd, 2021. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you, as always, by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. I'm available. You can always email me questions or comments. Ed Zollers at CurrentFeralTaxDevelopments.com. You can also find me. I am a member of the Arizona, uh, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois and Washington Societies of CPAs. And I do take a look at their Connect sites. I also follow the Idaho Society's um, interactive uh, board that they have for posting things. So if you have any issues, you can post on those sites. And if I think I can help and I'm reading and I'm not in a position where I don't have time at all because I end up with doing various things this time of year in terms of courses, I'll try to reply and get back to you. In there, if you're on one of those, so make use of those. They are really good resources, and there are more people than me sitting on those places. So, you actually can get a lot of input about any sort of issue you've got by going to those resources. I highly recommend them. Otherwise, we're going to see you next week. Probably not. We're coming with a very short week, right? It's Thanksgiving week, and enjoy your Thanksgiving. I have a feeling we're obviously not going to see a new tax law by the end of next week. And I suspect the developments will be very, very limited because D.C. is going to be kind of everybody's out of town. So we'll see what we talk about next week. But I'll plan to be back next week talking about at least something that happens during the week. And we'll see you then on current federal tax developments.